Okay, today my guest is Professor Mitchell Koza. I'll keep my introduction short to maximize our time with him. In the next 30 minutes or so, we'll talk about Mitchell as a person. Professor Koza is a thought leader and an esteemed scholar, and finally is a mentor to many PhD students and junior faculty. For the sake of time, I'll skip many of his accomplishments and give you a very quick snapshot. Professor Koza is a member of the Senior Advisory Board of the Global Strategy Journal. He spent almost two decades as an expatriate, as Director General and Professor of International Strategy at INSEAD. He was the founding director of the Center for International Business at the Cranfield School. He has served on the board of directors of EGOS and sat on the Quality of Markets Committee of the Philadelphia Stock Exchange. Koza was a co-founder and chair of the Global Strategy Interest Group of the SMS and founding director of the Interest Group's Junior Faculty Workshop. He is or was active as an editorial review member or held various editorial positions at Global Strategy Journal, SJ Magazine, Metamorphosis, the Journal of Management Inquiry, JIBS, and OrgScience. Mitchell's work has been uh, published in the major academic and practitioner outlets. His work also appeared in business press and magazines, had been translated into eight languages. Thank you, Mitchell, for joining us. Thank you for having me, Ilgaz. Uh, first question, what did you want to become when you were a child? I grew up in the period in which the so-called space race was occurring. I remember vaguely when Alan Shepard first went up following Yuri Gagarin from the Soviet Union. And like many uh, young kids at that period, what I wanted was to be an astronaut. I didn't realize there was a relatively small number of positions. <laughs> Uh, um, can, can you remember, can you pinpoint the earliest time that you can say that there's this domestic versus international difference? It's, it's interesting that um, I, I really was not aware of this until relatively late. Um, I, I was trained in the U.S. I grew up in the U.S., took my first academic position at UCLA and went to visit at INSEAD. Um, for what I thought would be a year or two. And I was absolutely overwhelmed with how fascinating it was. Um, it was just the period um, at which Europe as a political entity was emerging. And so many of the issues I had been trained in, in sociology, were directly relevant to issues of strategic management. Um, in the US, of course, what you observe is strategic management or strategy is primarily driven by interests in economics, industrial organization economics, et cetera, et cetera. And the residual variable in strategic decisions and actions that may be attributable to social and political variables is relatively small. And that's because the environment is so homogeneous. Well, I got to Europe and what I found was exactly the opposite. Obviously, economics is the base and it still drives so much of behavior and decision-making, but net of those economic considerations, political and social variables were central. That residual variation was actually much larger. You know, you had cultural variation, even just across the continent, not even considering other regions. You had different legal systems, you had different regulatory systems, languages, culture. Um, so the things that I was interested in 
were really quite central to the evolution of European business. In fact, what we were observing at the time was the evolution of a new form of European cooperation. Um, and, and, and it was just fascinating to me. Um, so, you know, I can't say I certainly started out with an interest in international business, but I uh, kind of got dropped in the deep end when I moved to Fontainebleau and, uh, you know, hopefully I learned how to swim. <laughs> um, something that is not on your CV that people might find interesting. I have spent many decades now teaching in the field of global strategy. One thing that's not on my CV is in the last couple of years, I've started teaching a course, actually it's the first undergraduate class I've really ever taught, on the organization and management of the music industry. Music is something that is a passion for me. Uh, my family, my father, my grandfather were musicians. And um, I've always had kind of uh, my own interest in that. And if I hadn't been an academic, I would have preferred to have been a rock and roll star. Um, <laughs> that has a few more positions than astronauts do, but not that many. Um, um, and, and this course on music has been fascinating to me. Um, um, not only because music itself is so interesting as an industry, but the practice of music actually has fed back into my understanding of, of strategic issues. You know, if you think about improvisation, what is improvisation? It's deviation from scales. There are scales in music and there are melodies and a, and a jazz break would be playing around those melodies in ways that work. Well, you know, if you think about organizations, what, what's, what's innovation? It's deviation from standard operating procedures that also work. And so it's actually something that, although is not directly related to my research um, or historical teaching, it's something that I have found immensely pleasurable and satisfying. Um, and it's actually um, something I've begun to write about. Haven't published anything on it yet, but I've begun writing about it. Do you play an instrument? I do play an instrument, or at least I used to play an instrument. And like most people in my generation, I play guitar, um, um, or at least I used to. Uh, well, normally I ask if you stop doing what you're doing today, what's the second alternative, uh, best uh, alternative? <laughs> but always I have my answer on that one. Uh, regrets, have you got any regrets, maybe? Uh, I don't have any regrets um, professionally, um, um, certainly, but I do have some um, interesting transitions that I've gone through where I could have gone in a different direction. I, 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 I was wondering if you would ask that because I actually prepared something. There's a wonderful poem written by Robert um, Frost that I'm sure people know, and I won't read it all, but I will read just a couple of lines. Um, it's from a poem called The Road Not Taken. It says, I shall be telling this with a sigh somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. 
So, you know, for me, I started out with a transition from sociology and education and moved to a business school. At that point, there were two roads in front of me. I had offers in business schools. I had offers in education schools. I chose business schools. That was a more difficult road because as I suspect, you know, when you step out of your social network and step into a new social network that you haven't built social capital in, it becomes challenging. And then when I left the US and went to France, I went from the US academic system to a more international system. And that was another road that was very different. So for me, it's not really a question of regrets. It's really about wondering a little bit what the road not taken might have led to. True, true. Uh, what was your biggest failure and what did you learn from it? My first dissertation proposal was not a success. Um, and uh, for a couple of weeks after that, um, I was really contemplating um, an alternative. Um, um, but I guess what I learned from that is you don't really learn so much from success. You learn from failure if you treat it as an opportunity to learn. Um, but it can be challenging and it can personally at times even be painful. You know, you spend months and months generating a dissertation proposal and the response was, um, I'll say euphemistically, less than enthusiastic. Um, the second one they liked. Um, I still like the old one, but, uh, and, I, and I took a look at it several months ago. I had found it when I was cleaning out something in my office. It wasn't, it wasn't bad. Um, but obviously, I was, was I, I, only I knew that, you know. <laughs> I'm, I'm curious, what was it about? Was the uh, it, it was actually about a substantive phenomenon in the education world. And my dissertation committee said that that's an area for doing research, but you need an intellectual question. And the intellectual question is the more important issue because it helps you to think through essentially how you're going to, you know, to, to what sample are you generalizing your findings? And um, that actually got me kick-started in an area I've, I'm still interested in, which is the area of collective choice. Um, you know, Kenneth Arrow pointed out years ago that many of the things we wish for can't be achieved individually. They can only be achieved through collective action. But as soon as collective action is required, compromise becomes part of the uh, landscape. That means decisions are suboptimal for people and you have to think about ways of uh, what the lawyers would call bonding those decisions. And I've gotten fascinated by um, strategic alliances and other forms of cooperation, trying to understand when they emerge naturally, when they emerge only through being engineered and how you literally make them stable. And, you know, if it wasn't for them rejecting that initial proposal, which was substantively and still is interesting, I don't think I would have done the kind of work that have, would, would have made me interesting to uh, um, business schools uh, and uh, international um, institutions. True, true. 
last question in the personal segment. Uh, what are you most passionate about? I'm truly passionate about helping young scholars move forward. Um, this is a professional passions, um, other than my personal and teaching interest in, in music. Um, but, you know, I, I have seen too often that um, in the evaluation process, not only the formal process, but the informal process, people become very involved in trying to help people correct things that are not, not the way they perhaps should be. And what I have found over and over again is that if you find people to support, um, th th that, that's really very satisfying. Um, I had an, an instance not long ago when I, and I strongly recommended to one of my colleagues, a junior colleague, to, to go up a year early. Um, and that was because you could see the record was there and, you know, the, the, the person needed um, uh, a little stroking. And that was something that was not as evident as I think it should be. And I think in general, um, we've really focused more on evaluation than on coaching. And I think the coaching piece um, is really quite critical. Thank you. Uh, about uh, your uh, description of your research uh, to laymen, who people who don't read your work regularly, say you're stranded in a in a pub, uh, locals don't know anything about you. How do you explain your research to them, and uh, how do you explain why your research is important? That's that's an excellent question, and it's something that actually happened not that long ago. Um, I was in Grenoble, where my wife was born in France, and uh, that question came up. Um, and, and the way I answered it was the following. Um, I said, you know, I'm interested in helping businesses that are operating in mul multiple countries improve their international competitiveness. And we talked about that and about what international competitiveness was and what makes some businesses successful and others less successful and what are the challenges of operating in complex environments. And everybody got it. Um, um, obviously, I'm not going to sit and talk about collective choice and the literature and uh, what, what, when I'm in a, in a pub or in a cafe doing that, but it helps you to um, uh, really refine what you're up about, you're, you're, you know, what you're about. It, it's not unlike doing executive teaching in many cases where you have to, you know, in the academic world, we, we value frameworks and literature. Um, um, and, and um, you know, when you're talking with executives, you often find that they're less interested in frameworks. They just want the right answer. Um, and so the ability to communicate in ways that are relevant for executives, but are also, you know, kind of they come out of rigor, um, um, becomes so central. So the issue of how you would describe your research to people who are not scholars is something that's much more generalizable, I think, than even just talking to someone in a pub or a cafe. Um, just try describing your research to your uncles and aunts. <laughs> I tried it to, to explain to, to my father. It didn't really work out uh, <laughs> that, that great. Uh, 
<clears throat> about omitted variables, uh, neglected areas in IB research, things that we should have done more, more of. Uh, what are your opinions on that? It's interesting. If you look at the literature, of course, you can find almost anything. Everything is there to some degree. But one of the things I have observed is something I was chatting about before, which is the um, relative lack of emphasis on social and political variables in driving decisions and actions, um, particularly for people who have been trained and uh, conduct their professions in the US, except, yeah, except for the IB people, of course. They understand this intellectually, but really haven't seen personally the complexity of this. I mean, we have a great diverse society here in the US, but it's remarkably homogeneous in terms of language, legal systems. We actually have a uniform commercial code that goes across the country. So I would like to see not only an in international business, but actually in strategy more generally, that as a complement to um, um, the more economic side of the house, that uh, sociology and political science um, are seen as contributors and have a seat at the table. And uh, I can see that. And about uh, creativity in research, uh, when your mind is basically uh, in, in a state of idle curiosity and you're thinking about new things, new topics, new, new angles, uh, how does this process work for you? I think it's probably an emergent process. Um, connections are made subconsciously, which provoke um, um, new ideas. And then ex post, we go back and relate it as a, as, as a rational process that our ideas grew out of the literature. Um, it, it's iterative, of course, it's not one or the other. Um, but but I, I, I do think it has to do with um, connections, which is why personal experience is so critical um, in, 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 in driving our research agendas. Um, coming out of graduate school, you felt, at least I felt kind of muscle bound in the literature. I mean, that's what we were trained in, the literature and methodology. Um, but it's personal experience that really drives new ideas, new, new thoughts, new research projects. Uh, Mitchell, uh, well, it's been a couple of years since your dissertation and a new PhD student comes to you and uh, he's not passionate about anything yet. He's, he's uh, unsure about what to do uh, in IB or, or even international management. So uh, he's asking for advice on uh, making you look into a crystal ball to make a prediction about what's going to be the next big question five to 10 years from now on. Um, what's your advice to work on as a dissertation topic? It's an interesting question. And I say it's interesting because one of the things I have observed in interviewing candidates for, for, for positions um, is to some degree the lack of a big question. 
um, not so much the lack, but a focus more on method, um, literature, et cetera. We went through a period after World War II where the big question really was um, the sources of integration and differentiated systems. What were the sources of order? Um, and for you know, 50, 60 years, all of the social sciences, not only in international business, the sources of order became so um, um, critical. And we went through wave after wave of intellectual agendas and research around different ways in which order um, um, was number one, challenging, and number two, um, resolved. It started, of course, in many different areas, but certainly it comes out of Simon and his interest in uh, subunit process, um, works its way through Blau, um, um, who raised the question specifically sources of integration and differentiated systems all the way through, I guess, Bartlett and Goshal and their discussions of uh, um, the transnational as a way of uh, creating order in remarkably complex international business environments. Um, but at some level, that question um, hasn't evolved quite as fast as the so-called solutions have. So I think the issue really is um, not so much what advice I would have, um, someone who is really at the, uh, the tail end of a career to some degree, um, but to try and find out what is it that's so motivating to them. Um, we're seeing an awful lot of interest in reputation and gender and um, racial issues, inequality, um, and, and those are empirically fascinating and important phenomenon. But what I would like to see is the, what's the intellectual question that those arenas allow people to look at. And obviously international business is an area in which they can become remarkably relevant. And of course, we are uniquely adapted at looking at them because we're so used to looking at diversity um, if nothing else, in national systems. I mean, uh, we started talking about evolution. I mean, you started talking about the evolution of IB. Uh, and going forward, uh, I asked this thing to a couple of my uh, guests about where they see this globalization versus nationalization or uh, populism, uh, whether they see uh, still a continued uh, emphasis on globalization. Uh, what's your take on it? Uh, we are seeing, as, as you so rightly point out, significant tension between those that support increasing globalization and those that are um, more um, nationalistic in their orientation. Um, and I think of it as a tension between those that see business as quote unquote, a long revolution in which things are getting better and better and more and more progressive. And those that see business in terms of loss, loss of jobs, outsourcing of uh, these positions to uh, other countries, um, loss of the kind of affluence that we had in the post-World War II period in the US. And this tension between loss 
and the long revolution is something that we are seeing played out, um, not only in business, but certainly in politics also. Um, so I think what we're going to see is a continuing tension there. At some degree, um, business is of course a driver, but is also embedded in, in government and politics. And um, um, you know, we're seeing things like Brexit, um, we're seeing things like America first movements, we're seeing the rise of um, um, nationalistic movements across other, other countries. Um, um, and I think we're gonna see more and more of that um, so it really does become almost two tribes, those that are supportive and excited by the new, uh, by the long revolution and those that are um, nostalgic for the lost community. Um, and it's very difficult at this point to see which way we're actually headed historically. And I'm hoping that international business scholars and scholarship can look at that tension in an interesting and creative way and help us to think about ways of resolving it. This was interesting, thank you. Um, the two camps, actually, when I asked this question, the two camps, people on the two camps, they are very adamant about uh, their side of the story and they say, oh, it's going to continue, we're going to bounce back. Uh, but. Uh, this was interesting, your opinion. Um, thank you. Well, it's really, it's really two different narratives. Everybody likes the word narrative. I mean, they're two different stories. Um, and the world seems to be consolidating into binaries in funny ways, even though there are lots of social movements questioning binaries um, that have um, become so important. But in so many other ways, um, we're seeing binaries and we're seeing tribes around those that are passionate for the long revolution and those that are deeply nostalgic for the lost community. And the question is, how is, how is that going to play out? What's going to happen there? And I don't have a crystal ball, um, but the balance continually shifts. True. Uh, third segment, your, uh, you as a mentor. Um, what was the best advice you received when you were going through the program? Press on regardless. True. That, was, that was some advice that uh, actually my, uh, my dissertation advisor, um, uh, my mentor, Charles Bidwell, offered to me. Um, at that same point in which my dissertation proposal was uh, um, not particular, the first one was not particularly successful. Um, um, so, so really the best advice was um, learn from mistakes, learn from things that haven't worked out, move forward. Um, one piece of advice that I got was everybody gets rejected. Um, in the journal um, review process. There was all this belief that uh, the elite are taking care of each other and they're getting their papers into the top journals. And I've done enough editing and guest editing to learn that even the elite members of the profession love to turn each other down. Um, 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 so I think the reality is um, 
rejection is part of the process. Sometimes it's um, not particularly helpful, but in many cases it is. So, you know, kind of look for the help, um, but don't let reviewer two dictate the future. True. Uh, you're in a unique position because not only you've seen uh, PhD students uh, along along this journey, but you also you, you were very active with the junior faculty uh, through the workshops and uh, the, these uh, programs. What are some of the common mistakes that you see uh, junior colleagues, PhD uh, <coughs> students make? Uh, things that they do that they shouldn't, but not to do. I, I think the greatest challenge is. Um, the fact that so many of the junior faculty, they're very well trained. They know the literature, they know the methodology, they're very rigorous. But what I observed in doing the junior faculty workshops for the Strategic Management Society Global Strategy Interest Group was that it was very difficult for them to articulate what their insight was that was driving their research. When I first started the process and people were coming and they were gonna present their papers and we were gonna do critiques, I gave them an assignment. I said, don't come and present your paper. Just come and give us two or three sentences on what the insight was that was driving the research. What did you come up with that was new? What was something that was really important? I don't want to hear about the p-values on your regression equations. I don't want to know about you know, the residual values and the dependent variables on your cross-leg panel correlations. Um, what I really want to know is what's the insight. And people had a remarkably difficult time articulating in just a couple of sentences what the insight was. And of course, you know, when you go into the, the business world, I mean, you know, strategy, the, what matters most is, is seeing daylight, you know, seeing that one idea that's unique. Then you have to execute it, you have to elaborate it, et cetera, et cetera. But without the seed, there's no tree to grow. What's the trick? I mean, you, you, you were very successful in writing your research or explaining your research to, to businesses. Uh, to practitioners, what's the trick in writing those type of um, uh, output papers? I think the um, um, most important thing when you're talking to a non-academic professional audience, to executives, for example, is to literally try your ideas out in an executive ed classroom. Um, you know, so many schools treat executive ed as if it's purely a moneymaker. Um, it's a revenue source, margin-driven revenue. It complements tuition, it complements state aid or whatever. <clears throat> but for me, what I learned at INSEAD was that executive education literally can be a source of faculty development. And it's a way in which you can learn not only new ideas, but how to make your work understandable and relevant in the real world, not in a trivial sense, but in a fundamentally important sense, because you've got to be simple 
when you talk to executives, but not simplistic. And the distinction of being simple, but not simplistic is not something that at least came naturally to me, um, but it's something that they taught me in the executive education classroom. BS is easily identifable by um, senior executives. Um, they didn't get there by being dumb. Um, they're actually, um, in some respects, higher IQ at the senior levels than many of our colleagues are. I mean, you get the best and the brightest competing in that world. Um, and what they really want to hear is, what's your insight? What did you actually learn? So you've got to be simple, but not simplistic. This was helpful. Um, well, last question. What's the question that I should have asked you about Evans? Oh, I think you have been remarkably <laughs> comprehensive. Um, if there was anything, I guess you could have asked, looking back, did I make the right choice moving into business education? Did I make the right choice in moving to uh, an international environment? And I would say emphatically, yes. Um, um, as Robert Frost would say, it has made all the difference. Perfect. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for your uh, contribution. Uh, thank you, Ilgaz. I have found this not only uh, um, interesting, but I've really enjoyed having this chance to chat with you.